Good day, everyone. My name is Michael Morgan, host of the 2023 Alzheimer's World Summit, and I'd like to welcome you to our introductory video, giving you an introduction and overview to this upcoming summit, and to talk about some areas that we found to be of interest, especially in the last uh, three years of our summits, themes that have emerged, and uh, again, an introduction to some of the topics that we're going to be touching on um, in these five days of the summit. So I'm gonna share my screen and go first here to a bit of a PowerPoint presentation that I'm gonna make and walk you through this. And again, this has uh, given us an opportunity to look at things of how progressed as we've been looking at, especially non-pharmaceutical alternatives, to Alzheimer's dementia, things that we can do differently to approach this subject of aging and indeed longevity um, worldwide. And one of the things I wanted to share with you is just a picture, and this has uh, kind of been an ongoing study that we've been doing of our changing uh, demographics in the world. Um, we live on a planet where there's an aging population that's on the rise. Currently about a billion and a half people are over 65 years of age. And in the United States by 2030, about more than one in five Americans will be 65 uh, and over. And interestingly enough, by around 2030, not that many years from now, for the first time in history, the number of seniors will outnumber uh, the number of children in our society. So that replacement rate, as we talk about birth rate versus death rate, is actually showing that there's more going to be more of a predominance of aging people in the culture. And we'll talk more about the implications of that in a moment. Um, where we are uh, in the aging spectrum nationally and internationally, when you look at this color-coded chart, you can see that in the red here, these are the uh, populations like in Italy uh, and other countries in, in Europe where there's the uh, most advanced age. And as you go down in the orange, you see that Canada is kind of interestingly in this category in a lot of Europe and Western Europe. When we get into the yellow, this includes the United States and China and Australia. And then when we get into the green, we see a predominance of uh, South America is in this 30 to 35 year range and some spots also in Central Asia. And then when we get into the light blue, we see here uh, certain spots, just certain countries in South America. But then the dark blue, this is a predominance of Africa. And it's interesting that some thinkers think that Africa, in terms of inheriting uh, world wealth, can be a, will be a major player in the next 20, 10, uh, 10 to 20, 30 years. So that's just something uh, to note as we look at the spectrum of aging around the world. And then the pyramid of aging that I've spoken about for some time is that in the traditional aging distribution, the little red man or gal on the top, that's been the older population. As we go down in age, at the base of the pyramids, we see the younger people. And that's been the traditional distribution of aging for the last 2000 years. And Bradley Sherman, who spoke at American Society of Aging uh, and others, um, uh, Ken Duckwald, uh, spoke about this too. It's like all of a sudden this dynamic is changing. And what we see here in the next 15 years is that there's kind of an equal distribution between the older people, middle-aged people, and younger people. And then 
uh, in the United States, as this pyramid kind of gets flipped on its head, so to speak, the baby boomers are about 70 million people, people that are between 50 and 70 at another 30 million. So you've got to have about 100 million people or about a third of the U.S. population that's uh, 50 years or over, which is something to contemplate and think about. And then the fastest growing populations in the world, we examined this about a, a year ago or so and looked at this. We see that China is one of them and Korea is another. Japan is another. In fact, in the next year, about a third of the population in Japan will be uh, 65 years or older. Uh, Italy, post-World War uh, II dynamics there, and also Spain. And then in the U.S., as a function of population, we see that aging is more uh, predominant as we've as we've seen. Now, um, when we revisit this data and look at this again, we have about 70 million baby boomers and about, uh, about uh, 50 million people are now over, excuse me, about uh, 100 million people in total are over 50 years of age. And in the next year, 33% of Japan's population will be over 65. And interestingly enough, we may not think about this, but in China, there's about 440 million baby boomers, about 20 to 25% of their population. So that's an area that people haven't considered as much, but that's interesting to look at that dynamic as well. Um, then I have spoken for some time about what I call the pyramid of inflammation where in terms of just national health and background uh, health dynamics in the United States, at the top of the pyramid, we have about 5 million plus people currently diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia, cardiovascular disease, about 20 to 25 million, diabetes and prediabetes, that's anywhere from 20 million and then another added 70 to 80 million. We have about 100 million people in that bucket and diet and pre-existing conditions, another 200 million people. So when you go down the pyramid to the base, you actually go down in age as well. So when we look at the number of people starting in their 20s and 30s, then 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, we see that in a way over time, aging is hurtling towards that apex, which could be problematic. So just something to be aware of in, in terms of current uh, demographics. So Again, what happens when the disease processes and this pyramid of aging are flipped on their head? We see here the younger population and the older population, what happens to the predominance of healthcare and the pressure that this puts on the US healthcare system, for example, if not worldwide to talk about that as well. And what can we do to address this? So the economics, and the quality of life issues seem to be more and more intertwined as we look at all of these uh, factors that we want to dis discuss to some degree in this summit as well to bring you aware of that. Now, um, one of the surveys uh, that Bradley Sherman and others have done is that we found that people actually prefer to live in place. I know this was the case with my own mother where people would rather not really uh, live maybe in residential healthcare settings or nursing homes, but they want to feel uh, included in their community. And it's surprising that these over 55 communities, which have been touted a lot, um, are not necessarily the first choice of a lot of people. They would rather, if they had their druthers, so to speak, age in place. 
And what does that mean in terms of the implication for economic support and the support structure uh, to address that? And so part of this comes into the discussion of what we call the care economy, which is defined as that sector of the economy which is responsible for the provision of care and services that contribute to the nurturing, uh, nurturing uh, that helps for the reproduction of current and future populations. And also how do we address the older folks in this as well? And so how big is the economy? According to a May 2022 report, um, they've estimated the size of the care economy, including both paid and unpaid and care and paid caregivers is up to $6 trillion. That's about a quarter of the US GDP. So it's not an insignificant piece of the entirety of the economy. And um, so Washington Post had an article, you know, you see these articles in the paper that are kind of indicative of people's awareness. So they're saying that there is a care economy crisis. The US is facing a shortage of caregivers. I think we're all aware of that, both in terms of childcare and in terms of elder care in nursery schools, hospitals, and homes. And so this is not just an issue for working parents or the companies that are employing, but it's becoming a national crisis leading to a $290 billion per year loss in US GDP in 2030 and beyond. And so there's a what if story that one of the papers published. What if, and this happens to be a, a man, which is interesting, there's a manager uh, who's very beloved. He gets a call and his dad has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and the family can't take anyone to take care of his dad. So the manager approaches the HR department and says, well, I need to fly home and I need to, to find, you know, for an unknown span of time to take care of my dad. And so the, the company offers the manager the following choices and says, well, stay at work or tender your resignation and re-enter the company once your time as a carrier is over. Obviously, a lot of women are aware of that scenario as well. So with great difficulty, the manager chooses to head home, giving up a paycheck and benefits, possibly for months or more. And meanwhile, the HR manager is scrambling to find yet another person adding to his list. So that's a what-if combination some of you may be aware of. It's like, how do we deal with this in the real world? And so projected growth of Alzheimer's disease by 2050, over 15 million people, that's about triple what we have now, approximately 4% of the U.S. population. And some estimate that it could be a lot worse, uh, depending on how you look at the projections. It may be 50 million people might have Alzheimer's to 100 million. And the idea is that you have half the population that are older with Alzheimer's and maybe the other half of those older people taking care of them. So that's why we've created this little chart. And currently caregivers over and above that are providing over $5 billion, half a trillion dollars of uncompensated healthcare. Some people say it's even more than that. So you can see that the economics and quality of life are kind of driving us to look at maybe something that's an alternative, something new, which is kind of what our summit has been kind of over the years, uh, been looking at in terms of the, the factors, but just to present you to the idea that these are very integrated and interrelated uh, themes. So, and again, the aging space is changing. What are the economic consequences individually and in families for the economy at large? And who's planning for this? 
And some of these uh, in the following slides are a little bit of my summary of over the last year or so as I've interviewed many people, and even more currently in the last 60 days in terms of what we call the models of aging. And so I've kind of deemed this in my own way, what I call the old model and the new model. And I'm gonna go through the left-hand side of the column for about three slides first, and then go back to the, the right-hand column in the new model. But the old mile model, when you look at how people are thinking about this, is that you know one concept that's just out there is as we get more frail, uh, vulnerable, we get more frail, vulnerable, and disease-prone as we age. Aging is a downhill process. Those with memory problems should be medicated. Those with memory problems should be institutionalized. Those with memory problems should be isolated. And the older population should live on their own communities, in their own communities, such as over 55 communities, apart from the general society. Now I'm gonna continue down the left part of the page here, this column. Also, the old model is that retirement is strongly expected, suggested, or encouraged. In the 1950s, and this has been a push economically, uh, by the United States, that in the 1950s, maybe 50% of the uh, workforce was older, more experienced people. But by the 1990s, that was down to 14%. Interesting dynamic in that shift. The old model is that we celebrate youth culture. That's obvious to see when you turn on TV or look at a magazine. Aging populations should be protected, but have little or nothing to contribute. Aging populations should be protected but have little or nothing to contribute. And younger populations need to figure out things for themselves. And continuing on this list, if I get sick, who will take care of my loved ones? If I have someone in assisted living or memory care, will anyone listen to my requests or concerns? How can I communicate with them? How do I plan for the economics of aging and memory challenges? And accumulated lifetime wealth and savings are spent in the last one to two years of what your life. You probably all heard of this. There is no known cure for Alzheimer's and it is not preventable. And senior care is based on the traditional medical model. So those are kind of a compilation of a lot of things that we've gathered. And it's just in the thinking space of people when they think about aging. Now I want to go back over and then go down the right column and look at what we call the new model, some of the things we're exploring in the summit as well. And so one is that aging is not a focus longevity is an American society of aging, where I've spoken the last few years. That's kind of been a focus that when you look at aging more as longevity, it has a different spin, it has a more positive connotation, not so much aging. And another thought is that quality of life is possible as we age. And another thought, we explored this in our summit last year when we talked about the hallmarks of aging, we can extend human lifespan and compress any disease processes or diminishment into the last few months of life. Another thought is that Alzheimer's is preventable and even more so in certain situations, we could reverse the effects of Alzheimer's disease. And another thought is we could slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease and possibly stop its progression. And people, as we uh, mentioned, people prefer to age in place. And then again, continuing on that column, the new model, older Americans can be included in the culture. Inclusiveness can be included and to those of an older age, as well as gender and other identifications. Senior care could be strength-based. 
people that still have strengths that exist in mind and body. And compassion can be included in the healthcare system. Older Americans and seniors worldwide can be a source of wisdom and guidance. Seniors are seen as a resource for the younger population. And there are resources to keep us healthy as we age so that we can care for those we love without fear and concern. And again, a few other thoughts about the new model is that we can develop resources financially so we can enjoy our extended lifespans and not sacrifice quality of life. And also we can develop resources for the care economy so that those who choose can age in place or age in the community where they have lived. And a robust program for disease prevention, including Alzheimer's is available for all the population. So I just wanted to kind of compare and contrast as we look at new subjects now in our upcoming summit to say, yeah, we're exploring how we can reframe, uh, which has been a gradual progression over the last few years, um, all of these subjects. Then again, just as a little background, because we explored this too with many different speakers, uh, Alzheimer's is not a one pill solution. Dale Bredesen kind of coined this, and I, I agree, I found in my own research, this seems to be the case, that there are many factors that can contribute to Alzheimer's, including inflammation that can be uh, based on diet uh, to a large extent, atoxic meaning hormonal, toxic meaning heavy metals, vascular as in stroke and heart attacks, and trauma like external blows to the head and the body. So when we look at this, we can see that not one size fits all. Some people could be 50% inflammation, 40% trauma. Some people could be 60 or 70% toxicity, 30% vascular. So every person we need to really honor as a unique individual in terms of the way the vectors are things that influence these memory and cognitive problems occur. But the good news is this kind of breaks it into different factors that we can address uh, in, a, in a little bit more of a coherent way. So in terms of my focus with cranial psychotherapy, my mentor, Dr. John Upledger, discovered, so to speak, and documented the existence of a cranial sacral system that conducts cerebral spinal fluid in the head and down the spine to the sacrum. So cranium means the cranium or head, sacrum means the sacrum, and in between is this dural tube or spinal column that connects these two structures together. And um, in our summit with various speakers, we really look at the, these multiple factors we just discussed, which contribute to Alzheimer's disease. And we feel that uh, CSD or cranial sacral therapy can also be a valuable resource, kind of tying all these pieces uh, together. And I just mentioned here, some of you may in this, see, have seen this chart in other presentations. This is called the lymphatic system network. Uh, and a lot of research has been done by the University of Rochester and University of Copenhagen in the last 10 years documenting the existence of the system. And essentially what's been found is that there's a very intricate system in the body that people suspected were there, but they didn't hadn't put all the pieces together. So we knew about the neurons. There's about 100 billion neurons in the brain. There's about 100 billion astrocytes or glial cells which connect them together. You can think of the neurons as Christmas tree lights and the astrocytes as kind of the wires that hold them together. Then about a thousand kilometers or 400 miles of blood supply. So this is a very intricate system. And from our point of view of cranial sacral therapy based on osteopathy, we wanna look at structure and function. 
how manually we could approach this area in a very delicate way and open up these pathways that may have been damaged where there's literally uh, less fluid flow. And on that note, cranial sacral therapy, again, is just a gentle, non-invasive manual therapy that connects deeply with the central nervous system and the flow of cerebrospinal fluid. And I've kind of begun to say CST is the missing piece in addressing Alzheimer's and dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Um, kind of our overall theory, if you will, is that CST helps increase the flow of cerebrospinal fluid in the brain, which helps to improve, which helps to remove toxins and unwanted proteins, including amyloid plaque. And also CST also helps reduce neuroinflammation from the brain and other parts of the central nervous system, uh, and could, which are with the amyloid plaque, they're identified as a leading contributing factor in memory and cognitive problems. So reducing neuroinflammation and removing plaque and basically revivifying the flow of fluids in the brain, we feel that cranial psychotherapy offers a very important uh, missing piece to all these other complementary modalities. And on that note, we can look and we will explore this in the summit, uh, various aspects of diet, sleep, metallic toxins, Lyme and mold disease, concussion and external uh, head trauma, and even holistic dentistry, another pathway of how insults can enter into the body and how important that is in looking at a holistic overview of how to protect ourselves from Alzheimer's and dementia. So in terms of some of the topics we'll be touching on, um, integrated medicine, we have a lot of very talented doctors that um, are speakers, they're MDs, and they are aligned with functional medicine, which combines the best of traditional medicine with a holistic natural healing approach. And as an example, Dr. Dale Bredesen, we've done an extensive interview with him, and he's been a leader in research to slow, stop, and reverse the effects of Alzheimer's disease. So I think you'll find his presentation to be quite interesting. Um, Dr. Heather Sanderson, Heather has developed a whole nursing home concept. So in, in residence and outside of a home where she's helped pioneer, for example, the keto diet and other innovations for outpatient and invariant residents. In a sense, what she's doing, to, helping to do is reinvent memory care structure and, and creating some very, very interesting results. So we'll be hearing from her as well. And then in general, we'll have experts talk about sleep. Remember that picture of the lymphatic system and how intricate that is? Well, sleep has a lot to do with draining just independently of what we've been doing with cranial sacral, just toxins from the brain although the cranial cycle complements that as well. So we're gonna speak about sleep. A lot of people are concerned about that. What about my sleep? We're gonna talk about uh, metallic toxins and talk about and, and interview some experts that are just focused on metallic toxins such as lead, mercury, and aluminum that can accumulate in the body and what symptoms that will create. How can we leach those out of the system? How can we approach that? Lyme and mold disease. This is interesting because mold and even Lyme has been there in the background for some years, but in the last five to 10 years, people are realizing that can be a contributor, not always well understood why, as to how mold uh, affects cognitive function um, and also memory and how this interplays with a lot of other uh, immunosensitive issues. And Lyme in and of itself 
how that factor is a factor as well. So we have a few uh, speakers addressing that also, which I think is of great interest. And of course, concussions and external head trauma. I know in the Upledger world, we've worked extensively with NFL players. And what effect does external trauma have on the head? How that's a factor even in the younger population as they age. So we're addressing and, and mentioning that as well. And then holistic dentistry, as I mentioned. Um, we've been interviewing some experts in this area over time. We have a very talented expert in this area who talks about holistic dentistry and how metallic toxins can affect that, how entree into the mouth and the bacteria in the mouth can put us more at risk, depending on the type that are there for uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. So we're going to talk about that to raise our awareness of how holistic dentistry is an important piece of this puzzle as well. And then another area we have been researching for some time, caregivers, because we understand as we've looked more and more in the Alzheimer's space, the caregivers obviously play a very important part in the dynamics of memory and cognitive problems. And caregivers are taking care of their spouses or their parents, maybe their younger children at the same time, and they can certainly be overwhelmed. So we actually even have support groups that support that in our uh, space as well with preventingalzheimers.com. But now we're looking at recovering caregivers, people that have actually been through that process and unfortunately their loved ones may have passed on, but how do they recover from years of being a recovery caregiver? So we're kind of looking at that element as well, which is a new element that's emerging as people have gotten on the other side of things, so to speak, uh, the caregiving spectrum. So um, the way we approach uh, prevention in Alzheimer's conditions rapidly changing, and there's very encouragingly a growing body of evidence that brings us hope that we can slow, stop, and even reverse the effects of Alzheimer's disease, which is on the horizon. So join us in changing this healthcare model. We're moving forward. There's lots of resources that we wanna to offer to you and keep us in the conversation. Uh, just for my reference, um, you can go to preventingalzheimers.com, my website, and you may see some emails as you've joined the summit on this. Um, and look at all the resources we have in that regard as well. Um, and I feel very, very honored to tie together um, a whole cadre of very, very talented folks uh, to be in this summit. So enjoy the viewing. Uh, it's our honor to bring this to you and you know, give us input. Uh, and we would love to have you participate and do love to have you participate in this particular summit. So uh, please enjoy. Thank you.